Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 414. I'm super jazzed because we're talking about cooking fats. And last week you heard I was all like listening with a giant funnel to my ear. What are those things called? Like when you're hard of hearing oh, in the like olden the, days? Like the ear funnel. It has Terrible. an ear horn. An ear horn. You knew the it name. Is totally, so impressed. It's totally an ear horn. I was all about that nut show with the ear horn to my ear. And P.S. I did what you said. And I opened the pecan butter, which I don't know why I was like saving it for something special. You know how you do that with things that come in that sound luxurious and lovely and nice. And so I had this pecan butter sitting in my pantry and I hadn't eaten it yet. And I was like, oh, my Lord, it is so good. (laughs) And I'm so glad it is good for me. Um, I had like a little a little moment where I was like, "Mm, num, num, num. So... um, (laughs) Sorry, when, I've just got the visual right, yeah. right now. And it's because I know my facial expression yeah. when I grab a spoon. Yeah. It's accurate what you're imagining right now. So mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the things that I was super paranoid about, honestly, I think that's an appropriate word, with nuts was the fat profile and the impact to inflammation and gut health. And we dove super deep into that. And so this week, I love that we're going to talk about cooking fats for gut health as well. Um, For those people that don't know, I have no gallbladder, which makes cooking fats a sensitive subject for me, (laughs) pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) I need like that one. Um, So I'm jazzed, jazz hands, excited to talk about this week's show. And... Thank you to our returning sponsor, the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club, who I have been steadily getting olive oil from since they sponsored a show back in 2018, I think it was. Oh, like the olden days. (laughs) The olden days. (laughs) Super. How long ago was 2018? Like super long ago. It feels at least one lifetime ago. Um. At least, at least. No, I, um, I, I love Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. I um, have had the uh, pleasure of meeting TJ, aka the Olive Oil Hunter, um, and he is exactly what you would picture of like super olive oil nerd. He literally travels the world. And goes to these like award-winning family farms that do artisanal olive oil and does these like tours and tastings. And then he selects which basically like which uh, harvests he's going to like buy out their whole harvest. And then that is the like featured olive oil. There'll be like one of the three featured olive oils and that quarter's um, box. Cause it's like a subscription service in this club and you never get the same one twice. They are, every single one is different. Like it's one of those things that you just think of like olive oil is olive oil. Right. But it's, it's not, they all have 
like a slightly different, they're all like a di- slightly different experience. Um, he, he will refer to them as like a, like two cough versus three cough olive oil. And it's because they're so high in polyphenols that if you take a swig, the poly, which I've done many times, the polyphenols create this like peppery sensation at the back of your throat that will make you like cough to like clear your throat. And it's, there's this like, it's just, it's such a fun experience. So I just, I love that he's, he is so into finding basically the highest quality olive oil being made right now. It's always like, like fresh from the harvest. It has a press date on it. And, um, and they all have this slightly different flavor profile. They are, I, I, I mean, it's, the best olive oil I've ever had. And I just love that it's so nerdy. I've been getting, um, gosh, I've, I'm, you know, I'm really, really bad at keeping track of years. Like it could be two years or five years that I've been getting them. It's obviously more than two years because they sponsored a show back way back in the olden days of 2018. Um, but it's been a long time. I'm terrible. Unless I have like a, my child, this to like, anchor something in time. I'm terrible at keeping track of years, but it's been a really, really long time. And I, every time I get my, my, my new box, um, from Fresh Pest Olive Oil Club, I'm like, I'm super excited. So I am really happy that they have like a fun way for our listeners to try out their olive oil. I want that job of going around and going to olive farms <laughs> like, <that sounds laughs> like a really good job um awesome so just as a recap you can go to um fresh pressed olive oil.com slash the whole view the whole view and you can try your first bottle free if you will pay just one dollar to cover shipping um that seems like a really good deal to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, it's, I would like a bottle of olive oil for $1. Yeah, it's, a, it's a $39 bottle of olive oil that, um, that he sends. And then um, you can decide if you want to stay enrolled in the club after you taste it. Um, there's always a 100% money back guarantee. So if you ever don't like a bottle that you get, you can contact them for a refund. Um, they stand behind you know, they're olive oils because it's easy to stand behind the best olive oil in the world. Um, and, uh, and so this is a great way for our listeners to, to, you know, try out, you know, TJ's hands selected artisanal family farm, hundred percent. It's like labs fied. It's all of the things that we always look for in high quality products. Um, and try it out for a buck. How cool is that? Very cool. I also want to point out that we did have them back as a sponsor in 2018 for the oil, the olive oil cast. So if you want to learn more specifically, um, dive into our first olive oil show, you can go listen to that. We'll put a link in the show notes. But um, I know, Sarah, you're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff as it relates Mm -hmm. to the best fats for the gut microbiome. I want to remind people that 
even if you don't take advantage of a wonderful bottle of the fresh pressed olive oil for $1, um, to please be mindful of the quality of oils that you're purchasing. One of the reasons that we choose sponsors specifically is because we can validate their quality and we continue to vet brands. There are brands that you know, we don't invite after they've changed different things that they do and stuff like that. And this is one that we've both been using for a long time and can say, you know, it's not going to be rancid. It's not going to be cut with vegetable oils and some of the other things that might happen if you buy olive oil off the shelf of your grocery store, for example. So just be really mindful and do your research because you don't want to be thinking that you're putting olive oil in your food for your health. And really what you're doing is introducing, um, you know, rancid flavored canola. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. So, um, you know, just, just make sure that, that you're doing that research. We've done it for you here with this sponsor, but we also, you know, I'm a rebel tendency as well. If you're like, no, because you told me to, I'm not going to like, okay, go do your (laughs) research. Um, but, um, I do appreciate that they gave this deal and that you and I have both been you know, trying their, what did you call them? Um, olive oil hunter <laughs> picks for years. So, yes. um, okay. I'm excited. I'm period. I'm excited. Jump into the science. Give it to me. So I thought what'd be really interesting to do for this episode is, is rank the various sort of common cooking and dressing fats in terms of their impact on the gut microbiome from best to worst. So like, what do we want to, what's, what's our go-to, what's our like, okay to use when the food chemistry requires something different versus what really should we be avoiding? And one of the things that, um, that I think surprised me as I was working on, um, my gut health guidebook ebook and the, the eventual extended version of that, that will be an imprint book, hopefully sometime in 2021. Um, one of the things that I, I did in the research for that book that I've been working on for six years is I tried to not bring any bias with me. So I really tried to just look at the science and not think about paleo or AIP or like any of the, you know, foods that I react to, right? Like trying not to bring any of that with me and really just like, what does the science say in terms of how this food or compounds in this food impact the gut microbiome? And it's been really interesting because it has really helped for me overall to sort of crystallize some of the foods that I have discovered work really well for me, even though they're not traditionally considered paleo and understanding why that might be, understanding where there is validity in some of the criticism of the paleo diet in terms of foods that are omitted, but for which there's lots of science showing health benefits, but also understanding um, some of the nuance, right? So there's different, even within, you know, basically health conscious communities, there's always different flavors, right? So there's different flavors of paleo, there's different flavors of AIP. And is there uh, an optimal way to do these things? And I think when we start getting into how different fats impact the gut microbiome, you can sort of see like, oh my gosh, like this is, uh, this is something that we can easily change. And, um, and, 
have really good impacts on our health because our gut microbiomes literally control everything. So our gut bacteria are controlling our immune systems, our neurotransmitters, our hormones, they control the gut barrier. So this is one of the things that I think is really important to understand. We've we've long talked about leaky gut. Um, what's actually controlling how healthy the gut barrier is, is our gut bacteria. So in order to fix a leaky gut, we have to you know, support a healthy and diverse gut microbiome first. Like that's, that is like a prerequisite for fixing a, a leaky gut. So all of these things are intertwined with our gut bacteria. So whatever we can do to support a healthier gut microbiome is going to directly impact our health. And it turns out that our gut bacteria are sensitive, not just to whether or not we're eating enough fiber. So we have this idea that they really need us to eat all this fiber because that's their food, but they're also very sensitive to the types of proteins that we're consuming and the types of fats that we're consuming, as well as things like antioxidant phytochemicals like polyphenols. And with fats, they are um, the type of bacteria that grow are determined by what types of fats we're eating and how much total fat we're consuming. So broad strokes our gut bacteria, the best the best bacteria that we want, right? The ones that we're, we're trying to grow, they love it when we consume lots of omega-3s. So think seafood. They uh, do really, really well when we consume monounsaturated fats. Think olive oil, think avocados. They like conjugated linoleic acid. That's the naturally occurring trans fatty acid that's in grass-fed meat and dairy. And what they don't like is omega-6s, right? The inflammatory fats that we're getting from vegetable oils. And I'm using air quotes because none of those actually come from vegetables. Um, and they actually don't like saturated fats, especially when we're consuming a lot, a high saturated fat diet. And you can actually do experiments where you keep the amount of fat the same uh, in a bunch of different diets and change which fat it is. And you can see these huge dramatic shifts in gut microbiome composition and in metabolic activity in a really, really short period of time. Um, so the other piece is quantity. And, you know, just as a, a general rule, um, we want to be consuming the healthiest fats for our gut microbiome. Turns out those fats are the same ones that we can do like these big epidemiological studies and show that when you consume a lot of that particular fat, you reduce cardiovascular disease risk and diabetes and obesity, same fats, probably the effect is mediated through the gut microbiome. But also we don't want to go crazy on fat. So the best sort of range for overall health and the gut microbiome is about 20 to 35% of total calories from fats. So that would be considered fat in moderation. And I know I said something in moderation two episodes in a row. I can only say what I said the first time, <laughs> which is, I mean, part of it is just common sense, though. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. yes, olive oil can be really great. But if you drank a gallon of it, would you feel good? Like, you know, <laughs> I get that. That example. I might enjoy the moment. Mm, I wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> we've talked about what happens. <laughs> mm, yes. So speaking of olive oil, excellent segue. Thank you, Stacey. Um, it turns out that studies show really unequivocally uh, that, okay, you're not going to cook with fish oil. 
fish oil would be the best, but let's really focus on the the fats that you would actually add to your food in cooking rather than the we're going to just assume that fish fish oil is either a, a supplement or you're eating fish. Um, so the things that you would actually cook with, olive oil, especially a, a high quality extra virgin olive oil is the best fat choice for the gut microbiome. Um, going down that list, let's look, I'll give a little preview and then I'll go into some of the details. There's not a ton of science looking at avocado oil. Um, we can... Um, we can infer because its composition is fairly similar to olive oil in terms of being high in monounsaturated fats, having a fair amount of vitamin E, having quite a bit of polyphenols. We can infer that it's it's probably second best, but there's definitely more science needed there to really cement its silver metal status. Extra virgin coconut oil is probably third, um, but as we'll get into, there's the science on refined coconut oil versus extra virgin is so um, like contradictory, like it's, it's crazy how different a refined coconut oil versus an extra virgin coconut oil are on the gut microbiome. So, um, probably there, that difference is a good argument for using coconut oil in moderation and not making it the, the go-to. So it gets a, a third place status, but like it's, it's a distant third compared to where olive oil is. Uh, grass-fed butter and ghee, um, and only grass-fed, kind of gets fourth place status, but it also def definitely for sure gets a use in moderation stamp beside it. Um, lard and tallow, what's really interesting is there's no studies looking at pastured lard or grass-fed tallow, so we only have studies looking at conventional. Those studies tell us that they, these are definitely fats to reserve for occasional use. Um, and same with palm oil and palm shortening. They, they get an occasional use. And then vegetable oils, again, vegetables in air quotes because they're made with their seed oils. They're not actually vegetable oils. Those are best avoided completely. Um, you know, the, the canola, the soybean oil, uh, the corn oil, those are definitely like we know, we already knew those were bad. If you look at the, their effects on the gut microbiome, it's very, very confirmed. So um, going back to, okay, olive oil as our, as our gold medal winner, um, there's actually been a ton of science looking at olive oil-enriched diets and comparing it to um, other fats. And um, there's even been studies that have looked at extra virgin olive oil versus a refined olive oil. And this is where I think it's, it's really interesting. So the types of markers that we're looking at when we're looking at gut microbiome are diversity. So uh, diversity is basically the hallmark of just a healthy ecosystem in general, but we know that it's really, really important for a healthy gut microbiome. So it means that there's a lot of different species. And the reason why that's good is because they help to basically keep each other in check. So they naturally balance each other out when there's more different ones there. The other thing that we're looking at is what would be um, considered an obesity microbiome. So we're looking at, this is sort of a broad stroke, so it's called the Firmicutes to Bacteroidetes ratio. Those are phylum level changes in bacteria, but we know that that ratio is something that is a hallmark of uh, healthy versus when it shifts, it can become more of an inflammatory or an obesity or a diabetes type microbiome profile. 
And then the other thing we look at is at either the species or genus level. Sometimes it's at the family level. We look at the growth of, are there these probiotics that we know are really important? Are they growing well? Or these um, species that are you know, potentially pathogenic, opportunistic, we know they, they cause problems, are they growing well? So those are the types of things that we look at. And what's really interesting is that when you look at um, extra virgin olive oil compared to other fats, right, compared to refined olive oil, compared to soybean oil, compared to butter, you see that the best microbiome profile occurs with extra virgin olive oil to the point where you can like correct gut dysbiosis by adding extra virgin olive oil, which is pretty a pretty spectacular um, data point. Then you see olive oil is like intermediate. So it's still beneficial. A refined olive oil is still beneficial, but not as good as extra virgin. And then if you look at something like palm oil, safflower oil, right, these are the, the problematic controls. So when you see a control in these studies, you have two different kinds of control. One is a non-oil enriched diet. So like a, what would be considered in like, say a mouse study would be considered standard chow, would be normal food. Um, and then that would, so that would be their, their like in normal situation control. And then there'd be the bad situation control, which would be consuming something like a vegetable oil. Um, and so you can see with these vegetable oil enriched diets, a a butter oil enriched diet that um, that you get this skewing of the gut microbiome that is um, causing insulin resistance. Um, it is increasing leptin, which uh, is impacting inflammation, impacting hunger, which is you know it's a it's a hunger hormone. Um, it is. Um, a more inflammatory microbiome, so it's it's associated with obesity. So you can see all of these shifts, and they're pr partially protected uh, by a refined olive oil, and much more, um, almost completely protected by an extra virgin. And there's there's a few different compounds in olive oil that are probably responsible for that. So a, a high quality olive oil is very very high in monounsaturated fats, which we know our gut microbiome really like. It's also very, very high in vitamin E, which is a really important antioxidant vitamin that we also know. So our, our gut bacteria are also sensitive to nutrient deficiencies. So if we're deficient in important nutrients, we basically lose species diversity because they're, they're basically malnourished if we're not giving them the nutrients that they need. Vitamin E is one of the nutrients that impacts gut microbiome composition because it's so important for their health. And then it's also really, really high in polyphenols. And we know, again, polyphenols are antioxidants that our gut bacteria metabolize. Um, that benefits us because uh, we only absorb about 5% of polyphenols without uh, bacterial metabolism. So the other 95% of the polyphenols that we absorb have been processed by our gut microbiome first, and it makes it easier for our bodies to absorb, which is super cool. So it's probably that collection of beneficial compounds that are responsible for all of these benefits, right? So it's the additive effect of all of the different things in a high quality olive oil. Um, and it, it's these impacts on the gut microbiome are sufficient to explain 100% 
why olive oil again and again and again in studies is linked to um, like better cholesterol profiles, lower risk of cardiovascular disease, like that is probably mediated through the gut microbiome. There may be some additional mechanisms behind that as well, but it is a really compelling shift um, towards a healthier microbiome with, with extra virgin olive oil. So Stacy, can I tell you how many questions we have in our queue from just the last few weeks asking about cooking with olive oil? I hope that it's not as many as that one show that we answered like seven questions and it was an hour and a half long. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, I mean, just recently, we actually have had three questions in our queue just in the last little while that were asking about whether or not it's okay to cook with olive oil. And so um, I, I want to make sure that we tackle this right here because I think it's one of the big myths about olive oil. I remember when I first went paleo and like one of the things that I did was I switched to like butter and ghee and coconut oil and olive oil became my, well, I used it for dressing, but I stopped cooking with it. And I've completely gone the other direction now. Olive oil is my absolute go-to and I only use a different fat when the food chemistry absolutely requires it. Um, but the reason is, is because all, there's this myth that olive oil has a really low smoke point and it doesn't actually, um, a high quality olive oil can have a smoke point as high as about 410 degrees Fahrenheit, which is higher than most cooking applications. And it's because especially a high quality olive oil is packed full of all of these different antioxidants, vitamin E and polyphenols that protect the fats in olive oil from damage over high heat and prolonged periods of time. So there's been studies where they've looked at like frying olive oil for 24 hours. Um, and it took like that long. It took more than 24 hours for there to be enough generation of oxidated fats for that oil to be considered harmful. Um, there was another study that heated olive oil for 36 hours and showed that most of the vitamin E content was still retained at, over that period of time. And so, you know, the studies actually show that, I mean, we're never going to do a, I don't know what you would cook for in oil for 24 hours. I don't think that's a, I don't, I can't think of a single recipe that would call for that. We know that olive oil actually, especially when it's high quality is very, very stable, um, at high heats for a very prolonged period of time. And it's thanks to the same things that are good for the gut microbiome. So, you know, again, if you, if you put oil into a hot pan and it smokes right away, cause you overheated the pan before you put the oil in, like that can happen to any, any cooking fat. Um, and if you, you know, if you're worried about the smoke alarm going off, definitely throw out that oil and start over. Um, but other than that situation, like you can put olive oil into a high quality olive oil. I want to make sure that that caveat is very well emphasized. You can put a high quality olive oil into a hot pan. And because the smoke point is so high, um, most of the time it's, it's not going to smoke. And it's, um, it actually makes olive oil one of the most heat stable fats that we can choose. So that myth is completely busted. I appreciate you addressing that because I too, like I said, I was super excited about this show because that is the number one myth, right? Is that like 
Sure, mm-hmm. high-quality cooking oils, you can use them for salad dressings, but don't ever cook with them. And when I think back to it, I'm like, I had been roasting vegetables in olive oil for years, and nothing mm-hmm. was ever – my oven wasn't, like, smoking up a storm or – you know what I mean? Like, anyway, good good to bring the science. Um, I think also um, one of the things that I – as someone who has a sensitive system can tell you is that um, I said early, early on that coconut oil was something that did not sit well with me. And people mm-hmm. would be like, well, it should. And do you know what I'm <laughs> like? Okay. You know well, you're feel? wrong. <laughs> I know. I do that word, I don't like it. Um, and so it's interesting to me that while you know, we come to learn more. So for example, I learned more about coconut oil on the skin. And while sure, it'll take off your eye makeup, it's not really like doing anything for you. It's not like a nutrient for your skin. Um, We learn more about it from the perspective of inside your body. And it's not um, ideal as your main cooking fat for everything as we once joked on this podcast like use it like <laughs> like what is it chris brock with his robitussin right like right um and so or, i just or like the uh uh windex from my big fat creek wedding yes exactly yes so i just want to also like you know subtle humble brag here a little bit on here we are we're revisiting science we're also looking at it from different perspectives than just you know one narrow lens to say there is more than one way to look at things. And when we find science that doesn't necessarily agree with our own beliefs, it's important to still read the science and learn from it. And we hope that, um, you know, it in, at least I hope that it inspires other people to do this from different perspectives, you know, uh, not just from either cooking fats or from what we share on the podcast. Like I, I just think it's super important to always evolve as a person as mm-hmm. you learn new things. So, okay. What other questions? You said we had three questions. Well, that's so no, we had three of the exact same questions oh. that <laughs> were about the smoke point of olive oil. So, um, so I think, uh, you know, I think that's, that it encapsulates um, olive oil very, very well. I want to go through some of the other common cooking fats, especially the ones that have been um, elevated in our community traditionally, for which the science shows um, maybe that's not actually the best idea. Um, But let's go to our like tenuous second place. Um, Again, so with um, avocado oil, there's studies with um, looking at the gut microbiome in whole avocado-enriched diets. And those show benefits to gut microbiome, uh, the metabolome. So it shows um, beneficial uh, metabolic processes from our gut bacteria, um, showing actually that it's improving gut barrier function, which is very, very cool. So we know basically we can do that chain of events, right? Uh, We're consuming this food that's good for bacteria that are controlling the gut barrier, so we're reversing leaky gut, and avocado is one of those foods. However, like when you're looking at whole avocado, there's uh, it's actually quite a high fiber food. It's also very high in vitamin E. Like it has other things in it that would be good for the gut microbiome. And so right now, the science doesn't allow us to separate out 
like how much of that good stuff is making it into a high quality avocado oil. We can infer because of the similarity of composition with olive oil that it's probably pretty good. Um, but I can tell you that I, um, I, I don't use avocado oil very often anymore. I, I, you know, I'm, if I'm making homemade mayonnaise, I'll use half olive oil and half avocado oil. That's purely for flavor. Um, it's sort of, it's sort of fallen off my, my, um, my kitchen radar. I don't know what to call it. It's, it's something again that I, because olive oil has become so much my go-to avocado oil is really only, I only use it specifically when I want that milder flavor, but the same type of kitchen chemistry as olive oil. And that, that there's not very many applications where that really becomes uh, a key choice for me. So I use it a lot in baking because olive oil has such a strong flavor. Um, I know you have an olive oil ice cream recipe that has mm -hmm. always baffled me. Um, I also, I use olive oil in baking. I make cakes with it. I make brown. Oh, my brownies recipe that's coming in the health cookbook. <gasps> so good and it's made with olive oil and it makes them chewy and like fudgy and you this is a total my tangent my face is like that i'm hearing you but i am not <laughs> believing what i'm yeah, hearing <laughs> i have i literally i have i have moved to doing a lot of baking with olive oil um there i only it doesn't always work in cookies but in cakes, it's like magic. I can see in cakes because there are olive oil cakes. And mm -hmm. um, the first one I had, I think I had with you in Philadelphia. And I was like, what is this magic? It was like roasted grape and rosemary olive oil cake. Do you remember that? This is complete side tangent. Anyway, I can see that. But I also know that it is, you know, if anyway, I like a very bland. <laughs> I don't want to say like, ba you know, it's a, it's a base flavor. And so if you use something like olive oil, that is legit good olive oil, you just need to account for that flavor. So um, if that's what you're going for, great. But for me, I do bake with avocado oil. And, but here's the thing is I use a brand that is 100% avocado oil. Cause this is another one that when it became popular, mm -hmm you'll find people, especially with dressings and mayonnaise and different kinds of things, it'll say avocado oil on the label and then you turn it around and it's cut with a bunch of other stuff. So you just need to be mindful yeah, of that. It's avocado flavored canola oil again. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Our, our distance third, our distant third is coconut oil. And this is one of those things that really surprised me because I have um, long put coconut oil into this like really special little class all by itself because the medium chain triglycerides that make up about 60% of the fats in coconut oil are sort of well known to be beneficial for, for gut health, beneficial for the gut immune system. Um, but when you actually dig into some of the science, we see these two different effects uh, on a high quality, like extra virgin coconut oil versus refined. So there have been um, studies using high quality coconut oil um, at like 20% of, of the total calories, which is um, a like relevant percent 
um, that shows improvements to the gut microbiome and um, increased growth of those really important beneficial probiotics like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium and decreases in pathogens. Um, and so it's um, there's the science showing that a high-quality coconut oil is really great. And then there's science with refined coconut oil um, enriched diets, comparing them to something like soybean oil that shows um, that it's, there's potentially some, some problems. So we can still show this increased, um, abundance of some beneficial, right? There's still some lactobacillus that love even refined coconut oil, but now we start to see some undesirable species, um, some potential pathogens, um, like some pathogenic clostridium species that are starting to increase in growth. And so I think that when you kind of look at these two different results, one with a high quality coconut oil and one with a refined coconut oil together, I think it makes, there's two, there's two interpretations that I think can be made at the same time. Uh, one is quality matters, which uh, thematic in this whole discussion, clearly, um, because a unrefined coconut oil is going to have a lot more vitamin E. We already talked about why vitamin E is so beneficial. It's going to have a lot more um, phytochemicals, right? So phytochemicals are linked with that flavor. Like a, a, an unrefined coconut oil is going to have a very coconutty flavor. And it's those compounds that are stripped out when you refine coconut oil um, that when you lose them, that's probably some of the benefit that you're losing when you refine the coconut oil even with a like naturally refined coconut oil. But at the same time, that makes sense. But it's also kind of heartbreaking to me because again, when I think back to the giant gallon buckets mm -hmm. of coconut oil that I bought, it was, was it called expressed? Anyway, it was, it had gone through a refinement process to take the yep. flavor of coconut out. Um, so I'm a little like womp womp. <laughs> yeah. So with, so when you when you go through that process to refine, I I think when you're talking about refined coconut oil, that's where there's probably a low dose is probably beneficial and a higher dose is probably not. So that's why I would say coconut oil in moderation. It's uh, probably probably we want to be keeping our saturated fat intake to that 10 to 15% of total calories range that's shown to be like what hunter-gatherers consumed and uh, has been shown in science to be a healthful range for total saturated fat intake. And we probably want to count medium-chain triglycerides because they're a saturated fat. We probably want to count them in that total. So 20% of calories from saturated fat, even from coconut oil, is probably not okay. And there's other science that would support that when we look at how those fats are impacting vascular health, for example. Um, so coconut oil is probably something that we want to consume in moderation and then definitely seek out the highest quality that we can. Um, so I think, you know, this is also, again, like, um, like so much, um, this is something that could be clarified with 
studies that compare the two, right? So if with olive oil, we have the comparison of extra virgin versus refined compared to either a non-fat enriched diet or a butter or soybean oil enriched diet. So we can really see the stepwise impact. Um, that's that's the type of study that's missing right now with coconut oil, where we look at, okay, so what's the difference between 10% and 20% and like 40% of calories from these fats? And what's the difference between extra virgin and refined? Um, and th- so that's something that we still need. So you keep, please, you know, one of the things that I I always want to be really clear when we're talking about the science is um, communicating that science is a process and it's not static. And so there's always a, like, what's the next question? Um, in fact, when you, when you uh, are a scientific researcher and you write a paper that summarizes your research, part of the discussion is always, what's the next question? Like, what is the, what is the thing that we cannot answer with this research? What are, um, what are the new questions that this research helps open up? There's always part of that is within the discussion of every scientific paper. So I want to include a little bit of that in this conversation, just to be able to emphasize that this is where we are today in terms of our understanding of coconut oil. And there's definitely unanswered questions that would help either push coconut oil higher up the list um, and maybe make it a really close third or maybe make it second in terms of its ranking, or that might push it down. And maybe, maybe grass-fed butter and ghee could get promoted if coconut oil got demoted. But right now, grass butter and ghee are in a solid fourth place. I um, really loved when butter and ghee became an option for me when I reintroduced mm-hmm. dairy. But I do, like all things, um, find that moderation is key. I know it sounds, we're the, we're, are we the bad guys right now? No, we're the good yeah. guys. We're opening up many possibilities for you. Just like anything else, butter is great, but four sticks of it, not so much. (laughs) A stick of butter for breakfast, maybe not the healthiest of breakfasts. I once had dinner with a person who pulled a Kerrygold double stick of butter out of their pocket and proceeded to eat it at the dinner table. It was... It was interesting. I'm scratching my head right now thinking about it. I, I wish I wish you could see my facial expression. <laughs> it is uh, decidedly not impressed. Um, we like micronutrients with our calories. That's all I'm yeah. going to say. Okay, just moving not, right not, along. Yeah, and more than just some vitamin A. So butter and ghee um, have a couple of compounds in them when they are the high-quality grass-fed that we know that those compounds are really good for the gut microbiome. So one of the things that they have is conjugated linoleic acid, this naturally occurring trans fatty acid that's associated with all kinds of health benefits. Um, it uh, has anti-cancer properties, anti-diabetes properties, anti-obesity properties, uh, protects against cardiovascular disease. Like there's all these different benefits associated with conjugated linoleic acid. And grass-fed dairy has about five times more than conventional And uh, we do know that conjugated linoleic acid is also very beneficial for the gut microbiome. It has been shown to uh, actually um, at least partially be able to counteract the negative effects of a high-fat diet in terms of supporting things like bifidobacterium. 
And um, there's a really important probiotic species called Acromantia municipilla, um, which is um, supported by conjugated linoleic acid. And there's all kinds of that particular species is one of those like really important keystone um, that is such a long name that we don't talk about it very often because it's harder to say and we don't have it. You don't find it in like probiotic um, capsules, for example, but it is supported by the, um, by consuming conjugated linoleic acid. And, um, and it has a whole pile of like direct benefits to our health. So that's one of the things that butter and ghee has that's beneficial. Another thing is that they're a pretty good source of butyrate. So butyrate is normally produced as a metabolic byproduct by our gut bacteria when we consume fiber. Um, it's a, one of the three short-chain fatty acids or the main short-chain fatty acids that our gut bacteria produce. And butter is like 3 to 4% um, butyrate from cows. Um, like it's higher from goats. I think it's almost double. Like it's quite, that's one of the things that makes goat dairy more sour is it's higher, um, concentration of butyrate. And we know that consuming butyrate has a lot of benefits again, sort of as a short chain fatty acid, it supports cellular health in general. We know that it's not as good as the butyrate that is produced as a result of bacterial metabolism, but it's still good. So, um, so these are the things that that grass-fed butter and ghee will have that's beneficial for our gut microbiome and beneficial for our health in general. But the studies that have looked at butter, granted it's not grass-fed, um, so they've, they've just looked at conventional butter. So that has, again, like one-fifth of the level of conjugated linoleic acid, similar amounts of butyrate. Um, those comparing it to other fats have generally shown that a high butter diet causes, um, the growth of pathogenic things, um, and also drives inflammation in the gut. So that is related to these changes in, uh, gut microbiome composition that is making it an inflammatory gut microbiome. And we can see that in these animal studies where they enrich the diet with butter. So, I think it's a very strong argument against conventional butter, but also because butter is so high in saturated fat, and we know, again, this is sort of like coconut oil, right? Once saturated fat gets into that 15-ish percent of total calories range, we start to see problems associated with that high saturated fat intake. Saturated fat is definitely beneficial only in moderation. And it's, this is probably one of the mechanisms behind that is that once that amount of saturated fat starts to increase too much, we start to see the growth of pathogenic inflammatory bacteria in our guts compared to small amounts where the other compounds in these fats are supporting beneficial bacteria and that can sort of dominate. So butter and ghee, only grass fed and gets a in moderation stamp. Makes sense to me. Although I also think that, as you noted, you know, lowering the CLA and all of that kind of stuff and the different benefits we know that come with it and um, all of that is important. However, mm. as I think makes logical sense to me, 
this sort of fat would come with an animal. And so if we're thinking about how our bodies, our biology, our gut bacteria evolved, the amount of um, CLA-rich fat, for example, would be relative to what you would get in a grass-fed bison or whatever would have been available at the time. Um, So I try to, I know we kind of joked about in moderation, but if it makes sense, I I try to think about things from that perspective. Like, Hmm. you know, if we're if we're adding way more fat to our diet than we would have had back then from, you know, fish that we would have had access to or animals or whatever, um, is that really what our biology is wanting to operate optimally? Because our bodies just have not yet right. changed to adapt to how quickly modern life has changed um, oh, yes. you know, for, for the many, 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 many years we had of, you know, without technology. So um, don't get me wrong. I, I love grass-fed butter and ghee, but like if I'm putting it mm-hmm. on that, you know, gluten-free cinnamon toast I admitted to loving the other day, um, do I really need it in, in all these other places? Because um, if I can use... Um, something like a true fat, like avocados or oil, I mean, um, avocados or olives or different kinds of things or the fats from them, that makes more sense to me in terms of what my body can tolerate. And I, I think I've just come to have this like logical mindset about this as I learn to adapt from what my body responds to. Because I know, for example, I can't eat a um, high fat meal in the morning because I don't have bile stored up and my how my body responds kind of tells me oh this is this is how a body is naturally responding to that much fat and so um that that logic I just thought I'd share from the perspective of I don't know I got cued off from the CLA and went on a tangent what can I say giving you you a break (laughs) from talking about the science (laughs) um no I I I'm sort of the same I now I can't tolerate um milk proteins. So I can't do any butter, but I can do a cultured ghee that has, um, the protein is first denatured through culturing and then, um, removed through clarifying. And, um, and even still it, I only use it when that flavor is absolutely called for in whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, and even then, um, I'll often do the sort of like traditional Italian method of cutting it with olive oil um, in order to – you get part of the flavor, but you get the higher smoke point of the olive oil. It's um, a very traditional sort of Italian cooking technique to use both. Um, and it's something that uh, – oh, especially over the last, I would say, couple of years um, since the – since I started accumulating enough of the sort of gut microbiome research to be able to have a clearer picture of how these different fats were impacting health. Um, I've, I've really taken a step away from, from ghee, but we probably go through a quarter of the amount, say per month or per unit time now compared to two years ago. And it's just because olive oil has really taken its place in most cooking methods. Um, and that actually goes for lard and palm oil or palm shortening as well. Um, now, 
there have not been studies looking at pastured lard. And we know that um, lard from pasture-raised pig is really high in things like vitamin D, um, things that are nutrients that we know are good for the gut microbiome. So looking at the lard research, lard has been shown to not be good for the gut microbiome. There have been studies where they've fed these animals these lard-enriched diet and shown that it causes an obesity and a diabetes-type gut microbiome um, and that you actually see these negative health impacts on the animals from that. It increases intestinal permeability. Um, you get higher levels of endotoxemia, so that's a bacterial toxin getting into the body and into the blood that's highly inflammatory. Um, so, like, those studies are really, like, yeah, large amounts of lard, large amounts of palm oil, not not great for the gut microbiome. Um, what we don't know, because these studies are done in refined palm oil, so a like red palm oil, like an unrefined palm oil that's like crazy high in beta carotene um, and vitamin E, we don't actually know if that would have a different effect. We don't know if pasture-raised lard would have a different effect. But in the absence of that data, the data that we have now is concerning enough that I only use those fats in my cooking when um, they're the the cooking application like requires that chemistry. So I would use lard to make a pie crust, for example. Um, because I can't do butter, ghee won't work, right? And all you can't you can't make an olive oil pie crust. That's not a. I'm pretty sure that's not a thing. If somebody, if one of our listeners makes an olive oil pie crust, um, message me and let me know. It's called um, olive flour so, soup. That's what. <laughs> that's what an olive oil pie crust is. <laughs> Yum. Um, so, um, so these fats have really like they've they've been demoted in my mind after. For a long time, um, like lard was my go-to for a long time, um, and it's I I really sort of changed, um, you know. Again, like it's not that I'm completely avoiding it. I only use pasture-raised lard and or pa- lard from pasture-raised pig. I guess the lard itself is not pasture-raised. That seems like a important semantic difference, um, but that um, now I basically only use it when the the cooking chemistry is such that there's no other option for me. I'm glad you noted about the, you know, limitations of the science on pastured or not. I mean, what we know already about the difference in those, whether it's pig or beef um, or even fish, is that obviously the fat is healthier when the animal is healthier. Um, but as you mm-hmm. noted, we don't know what that does inside of us. I will say, and this is like full disclosure here, after we wrote Beyond Bacon, we had done so much cooking with fat and with lard that um, we really took a break. Like we took a long break from pork for a really long time. And then when we brought it back in, used it more like you're referencing, Sarah. But I also want to note that, you know, I, I truly genuinely want to still encourage everybody to eat nose to tail as much as you can. Um, And so if you get a pastured pig, for example, like if you get a quarter pig or um, half a pig or quarter cow or whatever it is, you're going to get 
the tallow and you're going to get the lard from those animals, you can still render them and use them and find ways to make them work for you. Um, for us, we use lard to fry things at this point. It's yeah. usually the only time or a pie crust, but we ran, we rarely make our own pie crust at this point uh, because they have such great quality gluten-free ones and it's not like we're often eating pies so it's like at the holidays it's just easier when you're doing a bunch of stuff but um for me I I find that that lard is then you like we have a, a lot of it from a half a pig for example so then we render it we fry it and we save it for frying that we can you know we um filter it and we save it and reuse it until um, it's no longer usable. But that way, it's it's not something that we find ourselves using every day either. Um, right. And it doesn't it doesn't bother my digestive system. But I'm also not using it like to cook my fried eggs in every morning the way that I might use um, like olive oil or avocado oil to do. Um, I, I just want to put a plug. I know this is a, a fat-based show, but I want to put a plug out there for the air fryer. Um, I don't know if you have one, Sarah, <laughs> but like it has really reduced. I do not have one. It has really reduced the amount of like unnecessary, excessive amounts of like frying or these kinds of things as well. Like if you find yourself using palm oil often, for example, you might want to consider looking into an air fryer because we got like a large one that's also a mini oven and a toaster and whatever. So it's like a multi-purpose tool and it cooks enough for our whole family. I think the problem with most air fryers is like, you know, you cook four pieces of potato at a time or something. Um, but I found that with that, we we aren't even like frying in lard very often at all anymore because we're able to just like put things in the air fryer with um, some olive oil on it. So for example, we're making fried zucchini later today and my plan is just to kind of like toss them in olive oil and egg and then put some um, almond flour, seasoned almond flour on them and put them in the air fryer. And it makes it super simple and makes it so that I'm using olive oil instead of you know, I would have fried them in palm oil or lard or a combination of the two, if that makes sense. Um, so, A, I'm salivating thinking about fried zucchini. <laughs> um, and it's, that's, so it's interesting because uh, an air fryer has been one of those things that I have been like ogling and trying to decide. I have a pretty small kitchen. Um, and one of the things that really surprised me when I first went paleo Almost nine years ago, uh, one of my thoughts was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to get rid of all of my kitchen gadgets, right? Like, I'm not going to need any of these things. <laughs> and now you have twice as many. And not not only did I still keep those things because I still use my bread maker to make the occasional loaf of now, like, paleo bread or Nutrivore bread, um, it's, it's not just, it's not just that I kept the things that I thought I was never going to use again, but I have like 17,000 new kitchen gadgets that I never had before. Um, so I'm doing this like, but Listen, where would I put is, it? This is but not, it be cool to have. This is not sponsored 
this is an off the cuff. I'm like totally uh, blindsiding Sarah, but we use our air fryer every single day. I, and it avoid, especially now in the summertime, it's super nice to not have to turn on the oven. Like I can make small batches of um, like reheating vegetables and different kinds of things. It's, I, I can't even tell you, we love ours. And just like you, I was super hesitant to get one until I traveled this summer and was staying with Jen, who runs predominantly paleo. And she had the one that I got on her countertop. And I was like, this is a really not what is this thing? And she was like, oh, this is an air fryer. And she made green beans in it. And it was the mo- there were the most delicious green beans I've ever had in my life. And I was like, okay, I'm literally ordering one on Amazon to be <laughs> delivered to my home, even though I'm not there. Um, so so noted. So yes. figure out what, uh, what doesn't need to be on the counter to clear up, clear up some room. And it can replace your toaster if you have a toaster. So for what that's worth, we can put a link in the show notes to the one that I have that replaces all the things, because I do think that, um, I don't like, I don't like extra gadgets more than you need either. So anyway. Cool. Okay. What about vegetable oil, Sarah? Um, yeah, they're bad. They're super bad. <laughs> I mean, no surprise, right? I mean, none of our listeners are surprised to hear that vegetable oils are awful for the gut microbiome. They're literally toxic to probiotic bacteria. Like that's crazy. They're poison to the good bacteria in our gut. Um, what do you think that mechanism is? So, uh, it, you know, the, the way that those fats are processed, right. So they're extracted under high pressure and high heat, which creates a sort of like damaged fat that when you think about, uh, cell membranes, even bacterial cell membranes are made up of fats a damaged fat can kind of insert itself into that cell membrane. And then if that fat is damaged, it can disrupt the cell membrane and kill a cell, uh, for example, a bacterial cell. So um, that is probably, it's probably something like it is literally inserting itself into the cell membrane and either uh, being used for some kind of biochemical process that changes what's being produced that makes it problematic or it's literally impacting the membrane dynamics in a problematic way. Um, but it has been shown, um, it has been shown to be like really problematic for, uh, especially gram positive bacteria. So they have a, um, simpler cell membrane than the gram negative bacteria, which a lot of the pathogens are gram negative. So things like E. coli is gram negative, lactobacillus is gram positive. So that could be the difference of why pro-inflammatory pathogenic bacteria are supported when we consume soybean oil and corn oil and safflower oil. Um, And then these important probiotic ones um, are basically die off in in the gut. Um, But yeah, study over and over and over again. All, all of those vegetable oils, uh, I mean, we already knew they were bad. Um, they don't have any nutritive value. The fats are damaged. And it uh, turns out they're, they're really awful for the gut microbiome. So uh, we still are going to avoid those. <laughs> that's, that's still the conclusion. There's, there's nothing really new there other than it gives us an extra dimension of understanding how they're bad. Um, but really, to, that's, that's, yeah, all of those the best. That's really the, the conclusion. I agree with the conclusion. I also want to just 
put some truth out there that um, there's often, for example, soybean oil in things that I might purchase pre-made from the store and different kinds of things like that. And I would encourage you to just be really mindful of that as you look at um, the pre-made things that you're purchasing and how often you're consuming them. Because I'm, I'm a firm believer that like, you know, moderation of butter, um, you know, if you are doing everything right in every other way of your life, if you're adding probiotic foods, if you're, you know, getting um, exposure to probiotics in your um, soil, that's, you know, your organic vegetables, all that kind of stuff. Like if you're doing the things that we talk about, then, you know, having one of those pre-made foods might not be that impactful to your gut biome. And I'm speaking as myself and not as Sarah the scientist. I'm sure you have an opinion. But I just, I want to just remind people that that stuff hides everywhere. And so if you are purchasing a mayonnaise that is safflower oil or cut, or you're eating pre-made salads with um, canola oil as the base of the dressing, those may be places that you can easily swap out by buying either avocado oil only mayonnaise or making your own mayonnaise like Sarah does with half olive oil and half um, avocado oil. Um, and you can make your own or buy clean ingredient um, dressings. So you can still get pre-made salad mixes if you live in that um busy life because I know (laughs) I like to get the pre-made salads for emergency dinners some nights, but we just throw the dressing in the trash and then, you know, either have a bottle of our own pre-made or um, use a brand that we trust the ingredients on. But I just want to like point that out because I think it's easy to say, we know that vegetable oils are not good for us. You know, we've, I don't know how many times we've talked about it in the show, not just for the gut microbiome, but for, you know, inflammation purposes and different kinds of things. So um, I encourage you to, A, you know, have, have, allow yourself some grace with the choices that you are making. For sure. But also, like, (laughs) if those choices, as you start to look at them, add up to more than you would like, there are kind of easy swaps you can make for some of those things. Yeah, agreed. I think that um, I I love sort of ending on that note of that doesn't mean that having a little bit of soybean oil once is going to like decimate your gut microbiome. Um, One of the things that we know is that the factors that are influencing gut microbiome composition are additive and complex. And so they're sensitive to the types of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats that we're consuming, uh, the uh, phytochemicals that we're consuming, the nutrient density of our diet. They're sensitive to our hormone environment. So that's how things like our activity levels, stress, and amount of sleep that we're getting uh, impacts them. They're sensitive to our meal timing. So they're happier if we are consuming meals sort of synced with the light dark cycle. So like circadian rhythm and meals should be aligned, meaning we eat meals during the day and we don't eat at night. Um, And so we know that there's all of these different things. They're sensitive to certain kinds of supplements, drugs, environmental exposures, right? Like it really is multifactorial. And so this is about understanding those factors as best as we can and making the best choices that we can while still, right, if um, 
there is a go-to packaged food that is, um, you know, exposing you to a small amount of a suboptimal fat and everything else is great. There's no reason to have stress go crazy in order to find the replacement food for this thing, because then the impact of stress is going to outweigh the benefit of the better food choice. So it's really about understanding in order to make the best choices that we can and troubleshoot where possible while also, you know, understanding that, uh, the occasional bad choice is not going to like kill all of our gut bacteria. Right. So like it's, it's, we have our gut ecosystem is more resilient than that. Um, so it's about optimizing choices. We're making as many great choices as we can during the day. Um, but also realizing that it is the sum total of all of these different things that is important and a little bit of bad in a context of overwhelming good is going to be tolerable. I just want to clarify one thing, which is that you are not good or bad defined by the choices that you make. I know Sarah used those words and they're kind of like, uh, I didn't, I meant as I in, know you didn't. Uh, bad for the microbiome, good for the microbiome. I 100%. meant that very, yeah. I was just clarifying because Thank you. we feel very strongly about that here and we want you to find this to be a safe space. It is a non-judgment zone, um, but we also want to empower you with information to make those choices for yourself. So that said, um, if you decide to add more olive oil to you and your family's daily routine or um, how you eat your diet, so to speak, um, we encourage you to check out Fresh Pressed Olive Oil. You can go to their website slash the whole view to get the deal that we mentioned at the top of the show, which is um, to get your first bottle from them for just $1, including shipping. Um, and then if you decide to stay on, you can see what other kind of um, artisanal olive oils will be shipped your way. I love trying the different ones that they send. And um, Matt likes to look up where they're from and like do the whole thing. Um, they, they come with a little, with a little, like, there's a little um, like a newsletter type thing that comes in every box that explains where they're from and gives you some history behind it. And I always love, I, I too, I like peruse it. I'm like, Oh, it's this fun is such a fun talk. connection. Yes, mm -hmm. it really is. So um, anyway, if you want to do that, as Sarah said, there is a money back guarantee if you don't like what you get, but we think you will because we both use it. So freshpressedoliveoil.com slash the whole view. And Sarah, I have something else to to mention. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm so ready. Okay. We've been um, teasing for a long time um, that we had something up our sleeve. And um, now we're, we got it for you. So um, what you're going to get if you're interested in this project that Sarah and I have been working on um, is really a Patreon additional um, follow on to each of our shows compiled into um, a monthly something for you. <laughs> a monthly something. It's something. A monthly. Um, yeah. So um, you can now support the show through Patreon membership. Um, you can do that at patreon.com slash the whole view. And we have this um, monthly 
uh, audio compilation for you that is uh, going to be our uncensored thoughts on each episode. Um, it's unfiltered. It is, uh, there's, um, I'm going to make our listeners guess which one of us drops the first F-bomb. It may surprise you. Um, so definitely uh, this bonus audio every month, maybe not listen to it with the young children's in the room. Um, but it is designed to be sort of like a behind the scenes uh, additional commentary on each episode compiled monthly. So I'm really excited to be able to um, provide this um, extra window into our thoughts and thought processes to um, those uh, longtime listeners who are excited to get even more of us. I, I just want to say, if you've listened to this or the last three shows and you want to know how we really feel uncensored um then listening to the patreon episodes will be for you and um we've done this both because it is a way for us to connect to you in a really authentic sort of way there are times where Sarah would text me after we recorded and say, did I say too much? Um, and <laughs> I, you know, I, I also wanted to just say it's a way for you to support us. While some of our shows are sponsored, we try to really limit the amount that we work with sponsors so that it is um, appropriate and authentic to brands we truly use and trust. And um, if those brands don't resonate for you or they don't work for you, this is a way for you to support us and, and the cost that goes into this podcast over the many, many years we've been doing it um, in a way to be supportive. So if you're not familiar with Patreon, you can check it out, but it's basically a platform for people who have online material. And um, we hope to bring you joy and fun and truth on these bonus episodes. So um, I, I love that, Sarah, you came up with the idea because it is totally up my alley to, to turn off this recording and start a new one and be like, okay, now let me tell you, was the real, real. <laughs> um, so if you want to check it out, we hope to have this up this week over on Patreon, but please have patience with us as we, you know, learn the new technology and all of that kind of stuff. But um, hopefully this is ready for you as you listen to the show and you can just pop over and check it out. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in. Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others. Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen. Thank you for your patience. That's all right. <laughs> I, um ordered a case of Trulies for camping this weekend, and I didn't realize that I would need to show him my ID, so. Um, it's funny, because I had a dream last night uh, that my mother came to visit to meet the puppy, and she got up at 4.30 in the morning and started making a ton of noise in the kitchen and woke up the whole family, including the dog, and she was drinking all of my wine, and I needed my wine to cook one of the last recipes for the gut health cookbook, um, to photograph. 
And I was telling her how horrible it was because how was I supposed to get wine with the pandemic? And I was very upset with her for also waking up the dog at 4.30 in the morning (laughs) because she was planning on having a nap later in the day. But I said, but I can't have a nap later in the day. I'm going to have a cranky puppy all day. It was really, my mom's not, was not the shining hero of my dream. She really was, it was really not a good visit. There's a whole lot of like Freudian messages in that dream. (laughs) So many, so many, (laughs) so many. Um, Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.